Our scripture readings this morning. First one comes from Isaiah 55. And then we will turn to John chapter 7. But first Isaiah 55 and we'll read the entirety of the chapter. I'll be preaching from verse 1 to 5. 1 through 5. Isaiah 55 starting at verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here, that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands." Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Now we turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and we will read verse 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of God. Again, my text is Isaiah 55, verse 1 through 5. In the book of Exodus, chapter 17, we read the account of the people of Israel traveling through the wilderness, and they run out of water. And so they come to Moses, and they begin complaining to Moses, and they they urge him to give them water. And so Moses prays to the Lord and he goes out into the midst of the camp and he touches a rock with his staff and water gushes forth from the rock for the thirsty people. It's an account of the Lord's gracious provision for his people. 
Now I want you to imagine with me that there was something switched around in that account. Imagine that the people are traveling through the scorching wilderness and they're getting hot and the water runs out and some people are, begin to faint. And Moses, seeing what's happening, runs into the midst of the camp, cries out to the Lord, touches a rock and water bursts forth. And then Moses looks at the people and he invites the thirsty people to come and drink from the water. And the people just look and stare at him, but nobody comes forth. That would be a strange picture, wouldn't it be, to think that Moses would have to actively try to persuade the people to come and drink from the water that would save their life. That's a strange picture. Well, it's this type of picture that we find in Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 is a glorious invitation to thirsty people to come and drink freely from refreshing springs of water. And yet instead of the one inviting being overrun by thirsty people, everyone pressing in to get their part, we find that he needs to add persuasion to invitation. The passage sets before us what we know as the free offer of the gospel. It's the glorious invitation of Christ to sinful people, to miserable sinners And yet, as is so sadly and yet so often the case, we find a strange reluctance on the part of those who are invited, that they actually need to be pressed, their consciences need to be pressed for them to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive his salvation. And so we're going to look at this gospel offer as it sets before us the freeness and the fullness and the certainty of the salvation which is offered to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that we would all be compelled to cast off our stubbornness, our reluctance, and run to Christ. My outline is really simple. I just want to look at three key words in the passage, three key words in the passage and show how they bring out the meaning of it. So my first word is the word come. Come. Look at verse one. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The word come summarizes Christ's invitation to sinners. It encapsulates the gospel in all its richness and all its freeness and all its simplicity. The gospel says come, just come, only come. Come just as you are. Come to Jesus and you will be received and you will live. And the word is repeatedly used in that way. We saw that in John 7. There's other places in the gospel of John where Jesus uses that phrase, come. We know that famous one in Matthew 11, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. And then strikingly, we see how close this invitation is to the heart of our God and that he ends the Bible with it. The Lord wants us to get this. Two or three verses from the end of the Bible, we read these words. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Well, it's here in Isaiah 55 that we have probably the fullest expression of this invitation. And to understand the invitation better, we need to understand the flow of Isaiah's argument. We need to to see how Isaiah has gotten here. You see, Isaiah, from the very beginning, he has emphasized the sinfulness of Israel 
and the sinfulness of the nations. He begins that in chapter one. He talks about the blackness, the ugliness of sin. He's living in a day of rampant wickedness and he says to the people, he says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And then on the other hand, another emphasis of Isaiah is on the utter holiness of God, right? We know chapter six, Isaiah comes into the presence of the Lord and he sees the Lord high and lifted up the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And one of the titles that Isaiah uses repeatedly and is fairly unique to Isaiah is the Holy One of Israel. And so Isaiah is pervaded by this deep awareness of the holiness of God. And so these two emphasis is the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. And Isaiah shows again and again, when these two things come together, the inevitable result is judgment, fearful judgment, terrible judgment, judgment upon Israel and judgment upon the nations. There's 11 chapters speaking of judgment upon the nations that surround Israel. So universal judgment. We could say that Isaiah is asking a question that he sums up in chapter 33, where the people ask, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? That is, who can stand in the presence of God's holiness? How can a sinful people dwell with a holy God without being consumed by him? Well, the answer of Isaiah centers us on one specific figure. And early on, we begin to get glimpses and hints of this figure. He's, he's going to be the promised son of David. He is the one who will be born of a virgin. He's the one who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And as the book unfolds, we begin to get a fuller view of this coming Savior. We get a clearer and clearer picture of how he's going to meet this problem. And it all comes to its climax in chapter 53, that famous chapter, that well-known chapter on the atoning work of Christ, which is possibly one of the clearest expositions of Christ's atoning work in all of Scripture. There we read of this, this perfect one who is without spot, who is without blame, whose mouth is free from defilement, and yet he is rejected, he is scorned, he is cast off. And there we read of him taking upon himself our sin, offering him his soul as an, a sacrifice for sin. There we read that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so here we have our answer. Here we have our answer to Isaiah's question. How can we dwell with the consuming fire? Through this suffering servant and only through him. That's Isaiah's answer. Through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, we can have fellowship with the holy God. And so that's what chapter 53 is. It's that climax of saying, this is the answer. And then in chapter 54, Isaiah turns to the people of God and he says, sing. Sing, O barren one. Break forth and rejoice. Look at what God has done. Sing, O people of God. And then in chapter 55, he turns wider. He turns to the entirety of the world. He turns more universally. And he says, come, come. 
come and receive, come and partake of what this servant, what this savior has done. And so what are these waters then that he's inviting us to? Well, the context of Isaiah and of scripture make it very clear, right? We we read it in John 7. They are the waters of life, the waters of salvation that come from Christ through the Holy Spirit to all who believe on Christ. We have a beautiful picture in Isaiah 12, which we read as a call to worship. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's what these waters are. They're the wells of salvation. And so that's the picture then. We have this well, this well of salvation. It's been stopped up by debris and and rubble. It's been stopped up by sin and ignorance. And Christ comes forth and through his work, he unstops it. He takes away the blockages and the waters of life gush forth to a needy world. And there's two characteristics of this call as as Isaiah calls us to these waters of salvation. The first characteristic is that it is a universal call. He says, everyone, come everyone who thirsts, anyone who thirsts. You see, it's offered to all people everywhere. This was a radical thing for the Jewish church. For for thousands of years, salvation had been a trickle and it had been confined to their nation. But now Isaiah is saying, everyone, everyone freely come. And so that's the call that comes to us today. Everyone, anyone who wants to come. It doesn't matter if you're white or black. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, whether you're young or old. It doesn't matter if you're a moral, upright citizen who thinks that you've kept the rules and done everything right, or if you are a prostitute addicted to drugs, addicted to pornography, a guilty sinner. It doesn't matter if you've come to church all your life, you've grown up in church, you've grown up under the sound of the word, or if this is your first time ever stepping foot in a church, everyone who thirsts, there is one requirement, one condition. If you are thirsty, you can come. If you see your need of salvation, you can come. But the second characteristic is that we see this gospel invitation is free. Look at what he says. He says, you who have no money, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You see, because we could say that this is offered universally. It's offered to everyone, but then someone could say, well, how can, how can I receive it? I don't have any righteousness to pay for it. But it's been paid for already. That's the significance of the phrase, buy, come buy and eat. You see, he's saying that this is something precious. This is something of infinite worth that needed to be purchased. But then he says, come and buy it without money because it's been purchased already. It's been paid for by the precious blood of Christ. On the cross, Christ purchased salvation for his people. He purchased it fully so that there's nothing left to be paid for. All that must be added is that we must come and we must receive it. That's an astounding reality. What is being offered to us in the gospel is something of such worth, of such value, of such costliness that it required Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to shed his blood and lay down his life to purchase it. And now he offers it to you freely. Just imagine if someone came to you with a gift, a gift so expensive that you knew that you could never have afforded it on your own and they offer it to you. Would you reject that? 
put it another way, you know that silly phrase that's sometimes used, this cost me an arm and a leg to, to acquire. Well, imagine that being literally true. Imagine someone came to you and they gave you a gift that in acquiring that gift, they actually lost an arm and a leg. Can you imagine despising that offer? Well, brothers and sisters, this gospel call, this gift cost of the Lord Jesus Christ his life. He poured out his soul unto death, chapter 53 says, in order to obtain it. And so this then is the offer that Christ sets before us. Salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, everlasting fellowship with God offered to you freely. All you must do is come and receive it. You can't say it's not for you because it's universally offered. You can't say that the way has been made too hard because it's free. You can't say that he hasn't made it clear enough because this call is very straightforward and it's repeated again and again throughout scripture. And so we're left with the one question. Will you come? Will you come and receive? Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you receive his salvation? Now I said that the only condition placed upon this invitation is that we are thirsty. Well, Isaiah goes on to put salt in our food, as it were, to make us thirsty. He goes on and he begins to labor to show us how desperately we need what it is that he is offering. And so we come to our second word. The second word is the word why. Why? Look at verse two and three. He says, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. This word, why, there are, there are different ways that we can use the word why, right? Well, we need to understand that here, this is not merely a why of curiosity or inquiry. He's not just saying, why is that? That's kind of strange. Why do you do that? No, this is a why that carries a sense of bewilderment, of disbelief. Why? It makes no sense. And it's also a why that carries a sense of pleading. Why? You see, Isaiah sees the stark contrast between what he is offering to these people and what they are giving themselves to. On the one hand, they are spending their time and their energy and their attention and their labor for what does not satisfy. What they are chasing costs them everything and it gives them nothing in return. It leaves them dry and it leaves them empty. But on the other hand, he is offering them rich food rich food, wine and milk, and he's offering it freely. And then in verse three, Isaiah gives up the metaphor and we see very clearly what exactly it is he's talking about. He says, come to me here and your soul may live. Isaiah is talking about life. He's saying here and your soul shall live. He's talking about life, spiritual life, everlasting life, life found in God. And he's earnest that we would see the utter contrast between the richness and the fullness of what he holds out to us and the emptiness and the vanity of everything else that we could give ourselves to. And so those are the two roads that are set before us today. We have two roads, two pursuits, two offers. There is the eternal life that Jesus offers to us in the gospel. Fellowship with God, 
joy and blessing everlasting. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. It is rich food. It satisfies the deepest parts of our souls. We were made for God. And then on the other hand, you have the fleeting pursuits and pleasures of this life. Money, pleasure, comfort, power, self. All these things that we give ourselves to that are so intoxicating in the moment, but they have no lasting value or virtue. They so quickly fade away. And Isaiah looks out at a world that is consumed with all these other things, all these other pursuits, all these other pleasures, and he's baffled that they so strongly hold people's time and attention and that they ignore the offer of salvation. And so then we see that this why also carries a sense of pleading. Isaiah paints a picture for us of a marketplace in a time of famine. And you have all these people with gaunt faces and they're wandering around from booth to booth and none of the booths hold food. And so they're, they're purchasing little trinkets, little pieces of jewelry, little pieces of art. And then a man stands up in the midst of the marketplace and he says, come to me. I've sold my fortune. I've purchased a great quantities of food. Just come to me, follow me. We'll come and we'll partake of this food together. And the people in the marketplace, they turn, they stop, they look at him. And like we said of that strange picture in Exodus 17, if it was switched around, they look at him and they watch him for a little while and they turn away and they walk away and they begin again trudging from booth to booth, chasing after their little trinkets. And the man begins to plead with them. He says, why? Why will you go on spending your money, spending your time, spending your life on what does not satisfy? It cannot save you from starvation. Why, why, why? Now we need to remember, brothers and sisters, these are the words of Isaiah, but these are inspired words. And so on a deeper level, these words display for us the compassionate heart of God. These words are God pleading with sinners. This is the same tone that we find in Ezekiel 33 as God looks at the people of Israel and he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways for why will you die? Who can fathom this sight? This is God pleading with sinners to take salvation from him. Just think about it for a minute. We add nothing to God. God is self-sufficient in himself. He does not need us for anything. And yet he has sent his son, his beloved son, to suffer and die so that he could offer salvation in that son. Well, one would think that after all that he has done in Christ, that he would hold out the gospel and he would say, okay, take it or leave it. That, that if people said, no, I don't want Christ, I, can't, I want my pleasures, I don't want to bow the knee to Christ, so I'm going to keep on going after my sin, you would think that God would say, okay, fine, right? Go to hell if you want to. If that's what you choose, then go. But he doesn't do that. He pleads with sinners. He chases after sinners. He reasons with them. Isaiah 1, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He sends out his servants to the highways and the byways, and he says, compel them, compel them to come in. He holds it before our face and he stretches it out and he says, take it, take it. Why don't you take it? You will die without it. Take salvation. Stop going the way of sin. 
You know, there are very, very likely some of you here who are spending your life, your time, and your energy on temporal, earthly pursuits and pleasures, on friends, on money, on food, on clothing, on relationships, on entertainment of various kinds. And many of these things are not bad in themselves, but when they drive you, when they consume your attention such that Christ does not have first place, they become idols and they become sin. And maybe as you sit here, you even heard the first point and there was something in you that knows that you have not answered Christ's call. You have not really come to the Lord Jesus Christ and yet there is within you a reluctance, a stubborn unwillingness to let go, to let go of that sin, to let go of that idol that you have prized in your life. And it is to you that this voice of pleading comes. And I would stand here this morning and say with the Apostle Paul, I implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? Why? Why will you not give up things? Things that take your mind off Christ, things that cannot satisfy, things that will always leave you hollow. Sin does not satisfy, it cannot satisfy. And as you grow older, you will find your pleasures becoming more and more hollow and you'll find that you're seeking, you're grasping, and you're longing for something more. And then finally death will come and it will snatch away whatever is left and you will be left destitute and empty. Empty forever. You know, the past few months have given us a vivid testimony of the folly, the folly of seeking satisfaction in temporal things. God has been saying to this world, With one microscopic germ, I can decimate you. With all your strength and all your technology and all your self-confidence, I can take it all away in a minute. Are these the things that you will live for? Are these the things that you are giving your life to? They're nothing. They're wind. They're vanity if you place your hope on them. My friends, you were made for God. And he alone can give you rest, peace, life. He alone can satisfy you. And I'm here to tell you that God's word calls you today to come. To come, to simply incline your ear, to listen to what God has to say and to respond. He promises to give you the water of life freely so that your soul will live. It will live abundantly and it will live eternally. Why would you not come to the waters? Well, we have one more word to look at, and that is the word behold. Behold, look at verse four and five. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. This word behold is used often in the Old Testament to make us pause and pay attention. It's saying, stop, look, here is something that demands your attention. And Isaiah uses it twice in verse four and then in verse five to draw our attention to the sureness and to the certainty of this offered salvation. And these are built on the end of verse three where he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my steadfast, sure love to David. And so Isaiah is saying that the foundation and the basis of this offer, 
is the everlasting covenant of God. This was not a carefree, you know, off the hand offer of God that one day he decided, oh, I guess I'll offer salvation. No, this, this offer of salvation is rooted in the covenant promises of Almighty God. His honor is at stake in offering you this salvation. And so Isaiah draws attention to the covenant of David because in the covenant of David, God promised unequivocally to build a house for David. And he said, if your sons disobey me, I will punish them, I will discipline them, but I will not take away my covenant from them. This covenant will not be broken by man's failure. And so it's in this context that he says, behold, stop, look. And he draws our attention first to the head of the covenant in verse four and then to the members of the covenant in verse five. Or in Matthew Henry's words, he draws our attention to the master of the feast in verse four and then to the guests of the feast in verse five. So first in verse four, he draws our attention to the master of the feast. Look at verse four. He said, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Once again, Isaiah is pointing us ahead to this coming savior, to this servant of the Lord. And one of the focuses of Isaiah throughout the book is that he would indeed be a new David. He said in chapter 11, there shall come forth from the root, from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So this coming savior is going to be the true seed of David, the final David, the true David. And he's going to establish a kingdom of righteousness. And so he's not just going to bring forgiveness of sins. He's going to bring a kingdom that will never end. And he will deliver you from the enemies of sin and of death. And so God says of this one here, he says, I have made him a witness to the people's. I have set him up as the king of glory and I have made known to all peoples that he is my chosen king. Now again, we need to remember he's talking about the certainty of salvation. So then we can ask the question, how how has God made Christ a witness to the peoples in such a way that it emphasizes the certainty of salvation? The answer is in the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. This is actually a frequent theme in the book of Acts. In fact, this very chapter is quoted in Acts 13, referring to the resurrection. You see, by raising Christ from the the dead, God declared to the world, he said, this is my savior given for you and I am satisfied with the work that he has done. The salvation that he offers is sure. And then the ascension, God declared as in Psalm 2, he said, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And it's through him and through him alone that I offer to you salvation and life. And Peter draws attention to this very thing in his sermon on Pentecost. He speaks about Christ's resurrection. He speaks about Christ's ascension. And then he turns to the Jews and he says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. And so this is what Isaiah is doing. He's setting forth Christ. God has made him both Lord and Christ. God has made him a witness and a commander for the peoples. And he's demanding the same response that Peter demanded. Repent, therefore, and be converted. So do you want to know that the salvation that God offers you in Christ is sure and that it is certain? Then look at the empty tomb. 
Look up to the right hand of God and see there the Savior, the risen and the reigning King. God has made him a witness and he has declared that the salvation is accomplished and that in him there is victory. There is life to be had. But secondly, in verse 5, Isaiah draws our attention to the guests of the feast. Look at verse 5. He said, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Again, at the end, we see again that focus on God glorifying Christ, setting him up as the king. So just as in verse four, we have again the emphasis here on the certainty of salvation, but this time he draws attention not to the Redeemer himself, but to those who are redeemed. And he says, a nation will be called and a nation will come. A people once in darkness who did not know the Lord will run to this Jesus whom God has made a witness. God has set Christ before this world and a spiritual nation drawn from every nation, tribe, and tongue will come running and find salvation in him. It will happen. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying the offer will not be made in vain. Jesus Christ will have his people to be his own. He will have his people. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Father and he talks about the people whom you have given me. You see, God, the Father, made a sure promise to Christ that if Christ accomplished his work, that he would give him a people to be his own. He would give him a people to be his inheritance. And it cannot be, it simply cannot be that Jesus' sacrifice and work will be in vain. He will have his people. We call this effectual calling. It's the work of God's spirit by which he works in the hearts of those whom he has chosen. And he gives them eyes to see the glories of Christ so that they, as he says, run. Uh, A nation that did not know you shall run to you. And by the work of the Spirit, God works in his elect and people run to Christ. They are made willing in the day of his power. And so this king will have his people. He will have a kingdom of priests to be his own. It's a sure and a certain thing. And so it leaves us with one final question. Will you be among them? Will you be among them? Will you be among the people who partake of the salvation or will you be left on the outside? My friends, today is the day of salvation. Jesus said in Luke 16, he said, the law and the prophets were until John and until that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. Are you pressing into it? Do you see the urgency of the day? Do you see the privilege that you are being offered? Do you see your need of this salvation? Are you pressing into this salvation? Because if you neglect it, if you leave it to the side for now and you continue chasing after your other pleasures and your other idols, beware because you will be left on the outside. But remember, this is good news. This is good news. I don't want to end on a heavy note because this is good news. God has made this Jesus who we crucified by our sin, both Lord and Christ, and he set him before us as a witness and he offers salvation freely, to all who will come. And today that invitation is offered to you. And so I would plead with you one more time to come. 
to come, to listen, to live. Turn away from everything else that fights for your attention, for your focus, for your affection, and come to Jesus. His offer is free. His offer is full. And his offer is certain. So come to the waters. Come, drink, and live. Let us pray. Our glorious God in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for what he has accomplished. We thank you for the salvation that he offers. And oh God, how we thank you that it is free. That it is free. That we don't have to add anything of our own. That we don't have to earn our way into your presence in any sense. That we come freely. Oh God, we pray. Search our hearts. Try us, O God. See if there's any wicked way in us. See if there's stubborn idolatry within our hearts. Expose, Lord. Expose the hearts of those who are holding on to idols above Christ. And may they this day turn from their ways and live. And Father, help us all. We are your servants, Lord. As believers, help us to hold this offer out to a world that is without hope, that is drinking at cisterns that can hold no water. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to be your servants, to go into the highways and the byways and to hold out this offer, to cry to people that Jesus says, come. And Lord, that you would draw your people, that all who are appointed to eternal life would believe and that you would be glorified in the salvation of a people to praise your name. We pray this in Christ's glorious name. Amen.